I'm Kimberly Seapal. Today we talk with Lorraine Perry. She helps children cope with loss. She explains how we talk about death and dying on a child's level. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Well, I just wanted to welcome you to my show. It's kind of really interesting doing things locally. You just kind of walk down because not only are you an ex-co-worker at Lower Cape for Hospice, you also are my neighbor and also a very good friend. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for even considering us. That's wonderful. Well, how can I not consider? I feel like you're the guru when it comes to bereavement with children as well as healing arts. And, you know, a lot of hospices throughout the nation do not have a healing healing arts program. So can we just start off with telling us a little bit about what that is? Certainly. Um, Early 90s, there was a wave of understanding um, in medicine and at conferences about alternative and complementary modalities. And that was a very Eastern idea that was gradually being accepted by the East Coast. It had been flourishing in California and the West and in Europe. And so this awareness took place, and NIH said, we will put money towards finding out how expressive arts modalities, either the fine arts, music, yoga, massage, actually work to help people become healthier. Not necessarily a curative measure, but the calm and the... um, spirit of the person will bloom because of these interventions. So NIH made some hefty grants. And Music Therapy Association did the most work in finding out that vibrational music had an amazing effect. And blood tests were drawn, and there was an improvement in the body. Proven fact that music helps individuals that are facing a serious illness. Right. So alternative and complementary became known as integrative. It was more acceptable rather than an alternative to Western medicine. Um, and these modalities were introduced to hospitals, nursing homes, um, and hospice. Meanwhile, in England, they'd been used for years without any question, without any need for scientific study. Dame Cicely Saunders understood, well, before her, um, during Crimea War, the nursing of um, Florence Nightingale introduced horticulture, sunlight, song, motivational song. So this is not new. So this is nothing new. But it became apparent to NIH that to for insurance companies to reimburse for such modalities because these are professionals. These are people with master's degree in art therapy, music therapy, massage, yoga, that they should be paid for their work as professionals. And those professional associations wanted to make sure that they were recognized as valuable and validate the modality itself. So NIH took a real step forward and said, prove to us. So what is NIH? National Institute of Health. Okay. 
So just to help our listeners know a little bit more about that, this organization helps deem whether it's beneficial for individuals to be reimbursed when it comes to services to the dying, correct? Correct. So, you know, music became this huge, big thing in the healing arts, but there's other things in the healing arts that possibly aren't reimbursed. I know maybe pet therapy is used or art therapy, but tell me other things that are or are not reimbursed. Uh, Yoga, meditation, progressive relaxation techniques, massage therapy. Well, massage therapy is not reimbursed by insurance companies, but people pay out of pocket to have those things done. Because when you're in pain, a massage might relieve some of the pain that you're experiencing. And certainly the stress, the anxiety, and the ambivalence that comes for all human beings that are facing their final days. Wow. So Lower Cape for Hospice being a nonprofit organization, a lot of people are like, what's nonprofit? Basically, nonprofit is, I feel like the community owns this organization because they contribute, they support it. But also, no one financially benefits um, from services. So, but we as a nonprofit, I say it keep saying we because I've been there for 18 years. And even though I don't work there anymore, I still keep saying we, but because it's such a great organization, because it looks at what the needs are in the dying process and try to fill in those gaps to make it a an experience, correct? For sure. That's what we do. And there's there was a moment as I was working at hospice with you, um, you know, death can be heavy sometimes. And I was down in your bing bag room that I would kind of go and escape, especially when we've lost a coworker and it, it became really real to me. And there was one day I walked down and this gentleman was painting, painting. Well, he actually had a history of being a professor of art uh, in a New York art school. And, and that was of value to him as part of his history, his being. And the social worker who was visiting him in his home, because he was a home hospice patient, saw all the paintings in his house uh, and said, I I think that he would still like to paint. He still considers himself a professor of art. So I invited him to my art studio where those bean bags and play therapy tools are. um, And he actually demonstrated to me that he was still that professor of art and was going to teach me and some other patients who would visit um, how to do it. And uh, he said, he said, I was an excellent student and I was improving daily. Well, that's good. I'll never forget the last time I believe that I saw him and we became sort of friendly, just, hey, how's it going? He came like every Tuesday um, when he could. And when I was leaving, he was like, hey, you know, give me a kiss. And I was like, oh, sure. Kissed him on the cheek. And suddenly he's like, that's not how we kissed in New York. And as he was puckering up, I found myself in the most (laughs) unique situation. So I just landed and gave him a big kiss. And you were just sitting there about ready to bust open. Um, Well, you met the patient where the patient was at. And he, I think, had gone back in time to being a professor of art and being in his glory and his skill level was showing as he as that confidence was regained and so i think he he had that sense of male pride and I saw you as a very attractive companion. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that's the thing that I believe some people don't realize is that we do laugh 
um, in hospice care. But there's a lot of things not to laugh about. And to when I think of some of the things that are really hard for me, it's the children. It's the children that are facing uh, a death or... I mean, you work with children that are faced a violent, someone in their family's faced a violent death or a serious illness and you do camps. So, but I, I've noticed over the last few months as I'm getting older, friends, they're losing their parents, they have children. And I think there's a different way we should be talking about death to children, but we adults and myself included, we just don't know how or what. Well, a different way is a a very contemporary thought, but we first have to meet the family where the family's at. And so I have to recognize to what I bring to that interaction with the family and the children has a lot to do with the values of that family. And if um, the children are going to be cared for by grandparents because a mother died, those grandparents bring a previous generation ideal and values to the table. So I have to recognize that value and very gently model and encourage new ways of thinking. So when euphemistic language or religious language is used by this grandparent, who's now the caregiver, um, about the child's mother having gone to heaven and acting as if the mother's still alive, then I have to couch that into some biology and use nature as, and we use the garden, the heritage garden at hospice, as a place to look for the carcass of a turtle, you know, a shell that's been left behind, or um, flowers or leaves that have fallen on the ground, and talk about the lifetime of all things that have ever been seeded or born, and teach that other way of thinking into maybe a compromise of some biology as well as accepting the values of their faith. Now, we, I've seen a lot of parents and friends say, you know, gosh, um, granddaddy has gone to heaven. And without a, missing a beat, the young child's like, well, can we go? Exactly. And that's developmentally seen right up until about five and six. Um, it's a very our religions are very abstract thinking. They're metaphoric, they're euphemistic. And developmentally, for a three, four, and five year old who am asked to speak to regularly, their brain development is that of that reptilian part of the brain, which is the limbic system, which is about survival. So that child wants to know who the surviving caregiver is going to be. Am I going to be fed? Will I be sheltered? Will I be hugged? Then that is what they're missing from the parent who died. And they want to make sure, and their questions usually are targeted to, will daddy die next? Or will grandma die next? You brought up a really good point, because... There are different stages based on how old the children are, you know, elementary age, you know, middle school age, high school age, a young adult age. So people can interpret things differently. And act differently in result of a lot of young teens um, come to me because a school counselor said that the behavior is out of control. And I am able to talk to the child about that 
acting out behavior, whatever it might be. And sometimes it's bullying. And I ask why they feel the need to fight or act out. And invariably, what I find out is anger is the emotion that's described. I am angry. And often I will have them write the word anger, A-N-G-A-R, and put a D in front of it. And anger becomes danger. And what is dangerous? What Are you in danger? Are they in danger? Who's, who's in danger? Invariably, the projection is, it is dangerous because I no longer have my mother or my father. Do you feel like fear plays a role in that as well? Yes, yes. And that's what they're fearful of, is something dangerous, something that's lost, mm. that's not there to help them. The support is gone. The consistency is gone. The love is, the hugs. Many times children tell me, I wish I could get my dad to hug me again. Doesn't that just break your heart? Well, it's a reality and it's consistently there. So it doesn't break my heart every time. But I realize how important it is. You know, I lost uh, a friend uh, recently in the past couple of years. She was 36 years old and had three children and, and something just was tattooed on me. I went to the memorial service and the three kids were running around like it was just another day. And yeah, and I, I was just, they were so resilient. Part of the resilience is not knowing, not understanding. Um, a lot of times children are not even told how um, long and how uh, bad the illness was. And so it becomes quite a shock that despite the fact that uh, so-and-so had cancer and had chemo and radiation, they weren't given those details. They didn't really understand why mom lost her hair. But they understood that she's no longer in the kitchen cooking breakfast. So it, it it's a shock, but there wasn't any lead up to it because people were protecting the children from bad news. Is that a wise thing to do? No, it's not. I think that to prepare people for any kind of change in our life, whether it's a move, a marriage, preparation is essential to get used to a transition. And so you, and you, with your experience, if somebody is facing a serious illness, um, you can't have happen, a, a tragic ap- accidents happen all the time. There's something that you, you can't control. But if there is a serious illness that is occurring, it, to help the children prepare for what's going on. And what kind of language do you use when you're your friend, your spouse, your partner are facing a very serious stage four something and about to lose their life. How do you bring those children along? Developmentally, um, four and five-year-olds use the word very multiple times. So they say, my dad is very, 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 very sick. And then I know that that's the degree of sickness. But for eight, nine, ten-year-olds, they're more articulate about what the illness means if they've been told. Unfortunately, some children have been told when somebody has gone to Duke or Chapel Hill for surgery or whatever, that they've, they're just on vacation. They don't go into any details. So sometimes children aren't told anything. But children are within an environment that has become chaotic, um, anxiety-ridden, um, uh, whispers, so they know, invariably, the child knows something is wrong and is changing within their own home environment. And they're left to deal with it on their own. And to imagine 
all kinds of things. So I use play therapy tools with young children, and one of them is a huge dollhouse with all kinds of uh, figurines as well as furniture so that they can show me what's shifted within the nucleus of the family, what has changed, who's missing, um, who's gone for whatever reason. And so I get the child's story. And then if there are missing gaps, I meet with the the rest of the family. So it really is family therapy. It's not just child interventions. And talk about um, what's not understood. So is there a difference between a child seeing someone in the process over months dying versus, boom, a tragic? Of course. Now, a lot of times we'll have children at the care center, and as we get closer to the moment of death, the family has decided collectively, we don't want the children here anymore because we don't want them to remember um, grandma as non-responsive. So often they will have the beauty of having an art studio and a play therapy room in another building in the corporate building away from the care center is that I can work with those children separate from the bedroom where the patient is actively dying. So you have camps that are in the summertime that you help. And so talk to me about what, and I hate to use this word qualify, but what, what is an was an appropriate person to attend these camps? Because you have segmented them based on age, because of the interpretation and how people the language that you use. So tell me, who who should come to these camps? All children and youth, which which indicates an older child, uh, who have lost a significant person in their life and are troubled by that grief. There are some children that adapt very well to change and have been. Um, assisted by their family in understanding death, the dying process, death. And they come away from the death with a certainty and, and confidence of knowing this is part of life. Those children aren't eager to come to a grief camp. But there is something called complicated grief, where some children, for whatever reason, um, are devastated by the death and are coping badly, not have the mechanism for coping with the loss, like some other children. And those children are recommended and referred by uh, school counselors, social workers, to our camp. We then have an interview with um, that child and, and make sure that the child wants to come and make sure that this is an appropriate um, referral. So talk to me a little, it's, these camps are week-long, Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday. Tell me about some of the exercises. And I know they might vary based on age. Um, tell me some of the things that, that you do. Now, when of course, when I was working at hospice, it was always the cool day when the farm animals came and we saw children riding horses. And, you know, I, I never really engaged in a conversation with you. Like, why is that occurring at a grief camp? So that's one activity. Well, Activities need to be fun and engaging, um, and otherwise we would lose the children's interest. We use music early in the morning with a, mu- a musician who uh, teaches the children about vibration and how to calm themselves with drumming and um, 
and musical instruments and song and lyricism. And then we take the children into the art studio where they are provided with all kinds of art materials to express themselves, express their feelings. And every day is a different exercise. Um, one of them is one of those days is about learning about our emotions and and for each child to decide colors that um, match an emotion that they're feeling. And I use these huge syringes that nurses have saved for me, barrels without needles, where we fill with a variety of colors um, and plunge the stopper into the syringe and squirt streams of color onto large pieces of paper like a Jackson Pollock painting. Oh, wow. And as each child... I think some adults could benefit from that exercise, too. And as each child pushes that syringe that's full of um, color, um, they shout out the emotion, the feeling associated with, that they have associated for purple or red or blue or green or yellow. Uh, and, And children come up with their own emotions for each of those colors. And we have this giant Jackson Pollock painting, Abstract Expressionism, which is just that. It's expressionism. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are lots of art activities that include clay and drawing and painting. For older children, we do cartooning, which is uh, like making a comic strip of six squares that has to do with um, uh, a protagonist that is projected onto some character and then uh, uh, the action of that uh, character and the reaction and the consequence and how behavior uh, ends on a final square as consequential. And they see on the six squares their own behavior, their own ideas. So do you see children that come in that that are semi-confused? And what is the results at the end after they spend a week? Because it's not only you, it's other trained counselors, children counselors um, that are working, um, and then plus a lot of volunteer who have experience in counseling and are certified that are working along with you throughout this week. What is the evolution of when you see children um, come in versus when they leave? Well, actually, the five days are broken into the very first day, acknowledging that they are all there for a similar reason because there's been a loss of a significant person. Something like you're not alone. Yes. And the peer support becomes more and more evident as the week progresses. Um, But by the second day, we're actually identifying what the loss is. And that may not just be a parent or a sibling or a grandparent, but a a change of home. Hmm moving to another neighborhood, a different school. So multiple losses. Gotcha. And the new home won't accept the cats that they used to have in the other home. So all those losses are verbalized by the children. Um, By midweek, we are looking at um, how we have moved towards our own future and um, confidence building about who we are, what we can do for ourselves, Um, by um, Friday, we honor the person who died. And we have a ceremony to memorialize. And the children on that last day make memory houses, which are shrines with small figurines that they put in the shrine that have to do with remembered activities. We also make a collage during the course of the week that memorializes 
um, through memory things that, that were important in that relationship. I, I think what you do is amazing. I, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I would be crying. I would want to save them. And that's not what you guys are teaching them. You're teaching them tools to use and, and coping mechanisms to use to become healthy, correct? I think the verb that we use is companioning. And um, we companion on this journey of recognizing loss and moving forward with our own lives into the future. Well, there is another point that I would like to make, because if children do not address this grief and they don't have a way to express it, you've seen some things that could be detrimental even on an adulthood, correct? For sure. Yeah, unresolved grief is not not good, not cool. And the children realize they have to resolve it. Now, it may not completely happen in that week, but the response from parents have in our surveys have been quite remarkable. One uh, parent said, thank you for giving me back my child. Oh, wow. But very flattering remarks because they recognize that um, there has been uh, a growth. You also work with children one-on-one when camps are not uh, available. These camps are given in the summertime. And again, this is in Wilmington, North Carolina, but I I assure you that there are many hospice organizations and other organizations that specialized in these grief camps nationally. And I would encourage you to call your local hospice and ask about grief camps for children. And how do individuals get in touch with you and the multiple camps and services that you have for children, uh, middle schoolers, and teens throughout the year. Yes, we also have um, grief work groups in public schools in uh, seven different counties. Marty Hernandez is uh, MSW who provides um, those uh, interventions for teens, a lot of teens as well. Uh, Please look up www.lcfh.org and you will see a whole schedule of uh, activities, day camps, week camps that are available for free. And I would say if you're living outside the Wilmington area and you're a hospice and you want to know more about how to begin these types of camps in your community, I'm sure, Lorraine, you're willing to chat with them and show them sort of the things. Because, you know, a long time ago, we were also struggling trying to create these camps, but we just saw it as a great need, especially, you know, we see people dying earlier and earlier every year. And so children are left behind with great loss. Well, I'll say this. Thank you so much for your time time today. It's been amazing to see you and know that the good work of Lower Cape for Hospice, especially with the Sunshine Camps, the Children Bereavement Camps are continuing and um, we wish you the best. They're coming up in this summer in June, July. And so reach out, um, contact Lower Cape for Hospice and get more information. And again, if you are a hospice uh, on away from North Carolina or nationally, and you're interested in learning a little bit more about this, Lorraine is open to chatting with you. I am. And my focus is parent-child counseling. So know the whole family is invited to see me. Well, you're doing good work right here in our own community, and I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.